Welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast. Conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now, here are your hosts, Ed Stetzer and Daniel Yang. Welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping Christian leaders navigate and lead through the cultural issues of our day. My name's Daniel Yang, the director of the Church Multiplication Institute. Jessie Cruikshank holds a master's from Harvard in mind, brain, and education. She's an ordained minister and a nationally recognized expert in disciple-making and the neuroscience of transformation. Jessie's the founder of Whoology and the co-founder of 5Q. She currently serves as a movement leader with V3, and her new book is Ordinary Discipleship, How God Wires Us for the Adventure of Transformation. Before we talk to Jesse, we want to remind you that if you're enjoying our interviews, leave us a review. Now let's go to Ed Setzer, Editor-in-Chief of Outreach Magazine and the incoming Dean at the Talbot School of Theology. Okay, so we're jumping in with our conversation with Jesse talking about ordinary discipleship, how God wires us for the adventure of transformation. So Jesse, let's just start with, why did you write the book? Tell us a little bit about the context and the interest that you had. Yeah, thanks, Ed. Um I have been teaching people how to be disciple makers for a couple decades, and it started in teaching staff in a wilderness program how to disciple people and be disciple makers with while they would do 40 day, 40 night trips in the wilderness. So these were uh, young adults, adults, and um, got, developed a way that we taught and trained them. And then I, in 2014, I got recruited into denominational work in ministry and then started teaching pastors how to do that. I didn't know pastors didn't know how to do that, um, how to make disciples and teach people how to make disciples. So I brought those tools in and began just answering some of the questions that pastors have when you start to talk about everybody being a disciple maker and ordinary people being disciple makers. So I enjoyed helping pastors and helping churches become uh, disciple making churches and having those kinds of culture. But I noticed that there weren't really any books on the things that I was talking about. There are books on, you know, systematic theology and disciplines. And and I kind of call them like seminary light because they're some of the same things that you would learn in seminary, only just kind of written to a a slightly um, different audience. And that doesn't really help the ordinary person, right? Because the everyday person who goes to church isn't going to go to seminary. So the seminary light books kind of don't reach the the non-academic crowd. And there was another type of book that you usually find with disciple making, and that's written to people who are church leaders or small church leaders, house church leaders, but they occupy a leadership position and role in the organization. And while they were much more relational and talked about the relational dynamics, they still talked about it from a position of leadership. And again, not every person in the pew is supposed to be a leader in that church or that organization. So those books don't really help them either. So I wanted to write a book to the everyday follower of Jesus on how to be a disciple maker without necessarily having a leadership role. And what does that relationship look like? So not what the content is, because there's enough of books out there on that, but what is the relational dynamic, the EQ, if you will, of being a disciple maker? Yeah, so just a gap in the resource, and I wanted to help speak into it. I love it. And I think that you have, this is kind of a, a pattern for you. You really want to help ordinary people do the ordinary task of making ordinary disciples. And I, I've known you for for a while. And um, you, you take a couple of um, unique approaches that I want to get to. And I want to say to our listeners that where we're going to end up is talking about how pastors and church leaders can actually help people 
walk the ordinary path of making ordinary disciples. So I don't want you to think if you're a pastor or church leader listening, well, you know, I'm not an ordinary person. So I'm, you know, I'm in this leadership role, but stay with us. We're going to, we're going to get there, but I want to get through a couple of things in the content of the book. Again, the book's ordinary discipleship. You, you actually kind of uh, mirror reflect God's plan for discipleship with the hero's journey. And for those who may be not familiar with the, this idea in literature or film, well, you, you explain to us with, with these epic adventures, what does this mean and how are these concepts similar? Yeah, so I like things that are universal to start with because I want to work smarter, not harder. Um, and the hero's journey is this universal pattern in story of every culture on earth of every civilization. Now that's fascinating in and of itself. And we could probably nerd out about like that, but it's this pattern. I, I of think epic you and adventure. I could, I'm not sure other people would care, but yes, I'm with you. I'm with you. Keep going. Sorry. This, this pattern of epic adventure where you just have, you have an ordinary person who circumstances change and something happens and they get this call to adventure. And in the stories, they usually um, reject the call for step number one, reject the call. Step number two, um, situations and circumstances compel our ordinary person to, to go on the journey, to go on the adventure, to answer that call. And then they have like mentors and allies and friends and they team together and they face challenges and, and there's an increase in the challenges that they face, right? So we feel this because we know, we know this intuitively, but the, the temperature starts to raise until they have this big challenge, right? I call it the video game, big boss. And the ordinary person has to deal with that. And the way that they win, the way that they overcome that is that something fundamentally about how they think about themselves or how they relate to others changes. And they have this aha moment. They have this revelation moment. And then our ordinary person becomes a hero. And then they go back home on the other side of this amazing journey. And they have changed, but their world hasn't. And that kind of sets up the sequel. But um, that's the pattern in story that compels us that I believe is in, it's in every culture so that it's a pattern that God gave us so that we can find our way and understand the journey that he invites us into and the adventure he invites us into and what it takes and what we actually get to experience. So how does then, I mean, do we go through a process where we become a hero and they'll go back and replicate it? What does that look like uh, from the discipleship perspective? Right. So I think of every disciple being a person on their hero's journey. They're an ordinary person and Jesus is inviting them to follow him, right? Pick up your cross, follow me. Let's do this thing. And we have the ecclesia. We have the body of Christ. We get to do it together. So as a disciple maker, the role of the disciple maker isn't the hero, but the mentor and the guide, the person who comes alongside the disciple and helps them be changed by Jesus too. So we get to take that posture, walk them on that journey, and they get to have the revelation of what heaven is trying to teach them and be changed by that, be changed by what Jesus wants them to know. And Yeah, and I think, I think we tend to think of discipleship, and maybe it's because of just you know, traditional church background where discipleship is a, we have a time, it's maybe six o'clock on Sunday night or discipleship is Thursday morning at 6 a.m. It's a, it's a, it's a program or a time or a pattern or a school. Um, so what, I mean, you make some pretty significant claims in Ordinary Discipleship. Again, the book is called Ordinary Discipleship, How God Wires Us for the Adventure of Transformation. And some things you point to that are wrong or broken in churches in the English-speaking Western world, particularly America. Um, what do you think is wrong? What's broken? 
I think the idea that we use information to help people transform, it's not just wrong biblically, but it's also wrong biologically. And, you know, biologically, that's not how God created the brain or the human to be transformed. We're created to be transformed through relationship, through mirroring one another, through um, going on and experiencing the goodness of God. Information actually um, inoculates us even to actually being transformed. Now, the rest of the world gets this better than we do. Narrative disciple making is something that happens in so many other cultures and so many other places. And that's where, because of a lower literate society or, or a narrative-based culture, that is how they teach each other. That is how formation happens. And so it's amazing that, I mean, that's how God actually created us so we can be more successful when we learn, lean into narrative disciple-making. And, you know, we can, if we want, we can get into the brain science of why. No, I do want, I do want to a little bit, but I want to, I want to. Because, I mean, the – and this is where I think some of the bold claims in Ordinary Disciples should come out is that um, we sort of – and I think maybe I, I worked at a Christian publisher for for, for nine years um, because uh, because Christianity tends to produce people interested in a subject, and people interested in a subject tend to produce literature in that subject, and the literature in that subject has to follow a certain pattern to actually get to market, so we've sort of allowed market to shape our disciple – this is not your – your case. This is one of this is my my case. We've kind of allowed literature. And again, I, I literally created a curriculum called the Gospel Project, used by 1.7 million people every week, have a resource in their hand. Uh our team. I said I we we created together and and did this. Um so so but you push back on that, maybe, maybe to the horror of publishers, but you push and you are you have a publisher since you published this book. So so but then the question I think for a lot of people is is they get intimidated by the idea that they're responsible for the disciple making in somebody else. And maybe, you know, because they're going to disciple somebody, I need a tool for that. And that's where publishers helpfully come in. I'm for some of these resources, but I think that's kind of part of the rub is that you have a different approach. You talk, you talk about narrative discipleship. You talked about your brain science. Keep going down that road because it's a big claim uh, that I think will uh, challenge some people, but I want you to unpack it more. Yeah, it's not that I think discipleship curriculums are bad. I just don't right. think it's where we start. I okay. think it's what we add in later once we understand the person that we're discipling and what the agenda of the Holy Spirit is. Because I'm Pentecostal and I actually believe that the Holy Spirit's job is to lead us into all truth. And that's Holy Spirit's job and not my job and not your job. Our job is to participate and join the Holy Spirit in that. So if we start with relationship and we say, okay, I think that God is connecting us. I think that God wants us to to talk together. You you like the sound of my voice. You I have rapport with you. I'm I'm not made you don't we don't make each other crazy. Then we can have this disciple making relationship because we actually need enough relationship to get through the hard part. And the hard part is where we change. And we can't do that if we don't trust the other person. We can't embrace becoming different and having identity formation happen if we aren't connected at a heart level. So if we start in relationship and we understand that it's about this story, it's about what God is doing in your life, and I'm partnering, I get the privilege of helping discern that and helping feed that. And once I know the story you're in and the change that heaven wants to do, and I don't presume and assume, because that I think is a bold claim to think that you know what somebody, what God's agenda is in somebody else's life, and we're going to put it to a very formed curriculum, and it's going to happen in a certain order. To me, that's the big assumption. 
So if I can listen and hear, and then I'm like, oh my gosh, there's this great Bible study, or there's this great book, or let's go to this person's story in the Bible and look at that because I think that there's a wisdom there. So now all of those resources come in to support the lesson that heaven has once we've discerned that. So I'm pro all those resources. I just don't think that we start there. Yeah, it's um, the voice, what a lot of people are thinking right now. Yeah, I mean, not for the pastors and church leaders in our audience, but they're already probably turning over their heads that um, I got to get this to regular people. If ordinary people are going to take up this task, and that sounds kind of scary. It is easier to pull something off the shelf, and you're, you're saying you're not against that. But but in ordinary discipleship, you you make the case of the value of the relationship and the depth of the relationships out there. And I want to get to brain science in just a minute, but talk to me a more, present a little bit more on what it looks like. So I'm a pastor. I'm going to say to our people, uh, we're going to read Jesse's book on ordinary discipleship. You're going to just do this with and for one another. What does it look like? So I think it it looks like understanding what heaven has taught you, because I think part of the problem is that we, when we make information or right belief, the thing that we're going for, or even right behavior, instead of what, what the old, well, what the new Testament, what Paul talk about, which is God looks at the heart and God judge the, judges the heart and how connected we are to the heart of God. If we remember that that is what heaven is holding us accountable to then we can remember that, hey, I don't actually have to know everything. I don't have to understand everything. I can be on, in a journey and in process myself as I learn you know, scripture, but I am accountable to teach what heaven has taught me. That's, that's literally what the Great Commission said. Jesus says, go and teach them what I have taught you. And I think that that exact phraseology still applies to us today. So what has heaven taught you? And that is what we're responsible to teach and pass along. No more and no less. I think it's no more because when we start to teach things heaven hasn't taught us, that's where we get wonky in our theology. And that's where things start to go sideways. But also then if heaven has taught us something and we've had that revelation, those aha moments with God and with scripture and with the Holy Spirit, then we're accountable to pass that along. So when we right-size the expectation it makes it a little less scary for the pastor and a little less scary for the person in the pew. Mm. But I think the other thing is that we have to increase our trust in the Holy Spirit's leading and the Holy Spirit's right. double check. And we have to have enough relationship to have the follow-up conversation of, wait a minute, you taught what? You said what? Because no one should be a disciple maker without also being a disciple where we can have that community um, hermeneutic where the, the community is double checking each other. That's okay. critical. This, this, it all gets weird without that. And we know that. Yep. Well, I've seen it get weird. Um, so, so, and so have you. So, but, but I, I kind of, am still not a hundred percent sure if people were to say, let's say, you know, we, we, you're, we, we've, we've engaged together in around the Foursquare church. And I was a consultant and a coach for the Foursquare church for a while. You were engaged in that space. Let's say the first Foursquare Church of Denver, I don't even think there is a first Foursquare Church of Denver, says, I want to walk this path as a church. Now, if you ask me, what would it look like if a church adopted the Gospel Project, I could tell you. So what would it look like for a church to walk an ordinary discipleship path uh, on a day-to-day? -day? You know, So give me what we're doing and how we're doing it together in February. I, you don't have to be fair. We don't have to be a dated system either. But I just, I need more because yeah. I'm getting your philosophy, and we're going to talk about brain science in just a minute, 
But passive insurance leaders are asking, okay, but what would that look like? We got narrative, we got relationship, we're going to get the neuroscience and brain science in just a minute. But help a pastor church leader understand what it would look like in First Four Square Church at Denver. Sure. Or we can say North Rock, the one that I attend, and we go. have rolled it out. So this is, I can I can tell you what it's Perfect. what it looks like tell in me. the churches that have rolled it out. I love it. Um, so we have an online class, so you can you can watch that. The book came, that cl- online class came out first, the book came out second. Um, but it looks like a bunch of people in a room understanding and redefining what a disciple is. And what I've learned is that the normal people in the room um, have a clear understanding of what a disciple is and what disciple making looks like more than pastors. Pastors, you ask them, it's a long list. It's really complicated. You ask everyday people, like it's crystal clear, they get it. That's amazing. Okay, so then I have them practice uh, and have a form where they can articulate a revelation. So they kind of use the hero's journey as an outline to talk about where they were, what the God was teaching them, what the struggle was, what the aha moment looked like, and and kind of give some shape and form to that revelation so that they could either do it in 500 words or five minutes. That's the goal. Then, okay, who who's God drawing you to? Who are you have rapport with? Who's that person of peace in some parts of our, our world? Use it that way. And all right, great. Come alongside them. Now you start to pray for them. And, and I talk about how to hear from God, how to hear from God with one another, how to test that because it's just as important as hearing from God is testing it because we have mixture and we don't always hear correctly. So now we're going to hear from God together. And, and as we do that, we learn new things. We learn new things together and we're like, okay, here's, here's the curriculum of life or the curriculum we're walking through. Sure. Um, there's a, there's an assessment or a little worksheet that people can do to see look at their personality type saying, is it formal? Is it informal? Are you going to talk about what the pastor talked about Sunday? Are you going to just sit and have coffee and discuss the lessons of life? Right? So some people need more curriculum help and some people like more discussion because they're more intuitive. All the personality types are needed. All of them are valid. So discerning your personality type so you can create some frame of expectation. So now we're going to walk that journey. We're going to start to see where, where's the sticking point? What is the thing that starts to arise that the Holy Spirit is illuminating saying, this is the thing I want to be different. And as a disciple maker, you're intercessing. This could be a month. This could be three months. It usually sometimes the whole journey takes three years. So there are different um, arcs, patterns to it, depending on how deep God wants to work in the other person's life. So you start to be like, oh, that thing, that is the thing God wants to be different. And now you're praying, you're helping with resources, you're helping in conversation, and you you really have to be led by the Lord because as a disciple maker, you're holding space with that brokenness because you can't do the part that they have to do, which is that aha moment. You can't do that for them. That that thing in their heart that needs to have get, be given over to God for lordship, the lordship of Jesus in that space that lie about how they believe about God or themselves that the truth replaces. And the reason why we do it relationally is because it takes a while for the brain to rewire. It takes a while for transformation to happen. It takes time. And that is what a disciple maker does. So the people in our church, they identified individuals, they worked on these worksheets, they started to have conversations. Those conversations happen weekly or monthly. And as they walk along, they start to feel the tension of it. And they're like, oh my gosh, I don't know if this is going to work. I don't know if this person is going to actually, you know, be transformed by Jesus. And we're like, I know, let's pray. So as a community, now we're praying together for the individuals who are in these disciple making 
relationships. And little by little, the testimonies start to come, the aha moments happen, the miracles happen, the healings happen. And as a community, we get to encourage each other because each storyline has a different length. But as we're sharing and walking it together, we can support and be with one another. And then we get to celebrate. And that's a super important part that I think an informational discipleship paradigm misses is that we celebrate when the change happens. We celebrate the transformation. We have a rites of passage. And then we're like, okay, what's next? Do I continue another season with this person, another set, another cycle? Or you know what? Actually, God's doing something different. And there's a different person in our community that it's better for them to, to journey with because they need they need what that person has. They need what revelation that person has from heaven. So and okay. I did this in um, the wilderness ministry. We had a community of about four to 500 um, in this town of Wyoming that just lived this way. So mm-hmm. I lived this way for about 13 years with hundreds of people. And I mean, it's messy and it's beautiful and amazing things happened all the time. Miracles yeah, all the I, time. I don't, I don't want to join your wilderness community in the slightest. I have no interest in being... God, God, God gave us a desire for beds and air conditioning, but that's another story for another day. But it is interesting that you kind of walk through this. And, and again, we one of the things I love about the Stetzer Church Leaders podcast is Daniel and I get to bring on people from different traditions and backgrounds. You're bringing both some of your Pentecostal uh, flair and focus here. And I, li- I like that because I want people to hear the prompting of the Holy Spirit on this journey. But I also think it's important that people hear that part of your call is to kind of walk, I, I guess it's a little bit, I mean, the title of the book is, is Ordinary Discipleship, How God Wires Us for the Adventure of Transformation. But it's the ordinariness of this that I think really matters. But it seems, see, I mean, you do these interviews, but I press you on things because just people don't know that we've known each other for years. Um, but it seems that the from ordinary to brain science is kind of a leap. So I want you to, I mean, so for those of you who don't know Jesse, so she's like her Twitter handle is your brain by Jess. Uh, she's she lists on her Twitter bio a neuro ecclesiologist, which is totally made up. We're gonna have to have her explain it's that to us. Totally made her, up. It, it is, it is. Um, but it it but it speaks to what you think and know and have trained in. And so so I want you to now, because the subtitle of the book even hints at that, how God wires us for the adventure of transformation. So this now. What you've said thus far, probably a discipleship, a relational discipleship, narrative discipleship, community discipleship journey is not like out of the norm, but your encouragement is to is to embrace that and to walk in the prompting of the Holy Spirit. But what may be out of the norm is how does how does brain fit into this? Right. So I, when I said that I like what's universal, um, like that is what inspired me to get into brain science. So we're in the wilderness. I want to teach somebody something once so that they can remember it with a high degree of accuracy, like how to self-arrest with an ice axe or how to tie into a rope because their life depends on it. So that's when I started studying studying brain science. But very quickly, that became a disciple-making impetus. How do I have a conversation with somebody once for an hour, for 20 minutes? And it changes their eternity because eternity is a higher stake than even just whether or not they live. And so... I, I studied um, the biology and the Bible and saw, I mean, there's some amazing things in there of insights for neuroscience and in scripture um, that illuminate each other. But there's this fantastic way, like God didn't set us up for failure. He created us 
so that everyday people could make disciples, right? So the Great Commission, Jesus isn't talking to the spiritual elite. He's talking to everyday followers And when he says, go and make disciples. And he didn't say go to seminary. He didn't say go and, you know, start this really giant organization and preach sermons. Like that's not, that's not what the disciples heard when they heard go and make disciples. So there's this way that God created us that if we lean into it, it actually is much more effective like, like phenomenally more effective. I'll show you how more effective it is when we do it the way that God created us to do it. So you have two types of long-term memory. You have what's called semantic memory, which is your data fact memory system. It's like your Jeopardy knowledge. You're going to win money on game shows with this memory. And it also has a very predictable, highly described forgetting rate. So you forget most of everything by tomorrow and it's all gone by the weekend when you learn it in semantic memory is a data point. The other type of long-term memory is episodic and that has two parts. So it has muscle memory, like it's, we call it procedural memory, but it's how you drive your car and in my world, how you flip a kayak and stuff like that. And then the other part is autobiographical memory. And autobiographical memory is the memory of your story and it's interconnected with your identity and it's interconnected with your body, with your heart rate, with your breathing rate. Like it's not just stored in your brain, it's stored in your entire person. And your brain is highly invested in keeping this, right? When we have, and we forget our autobiographical memory, it's dementia, like it's a big deal. What's fascinating is that autobiographical memory is the only memory system that can project into the future. So it's the only one, the way that you remember your past is the way you project into the future. Now, semantic memory can't do that. So here's, here's the thing. If I say George Washington was the first president of the United States, now apply that to your future. Like it's blank, right? You can't. It's, it, it literally is the wrong memory system. It's biologically not possible. So if I teach you God is good as a data point, as a piece of information, you literally cannot apply it to your life. And that's how we get to educated beyond our obedience, as Dallas Willard would talk about. Now, if I learn God is good experientially in my autobiography, in that memory system, I automatically apply it to my life. I can't help it. It's just trying to figure out my future and try to help me navigate and survive in this world. So that is the way that it's easier by doing the participating with the way God created us to do autobiographical journey, story, identity formation automatically changes our life. If we do it the other way where we like, remember, you know, the other thing I like to talk about is if you have a 20 minute sermon and you take notes, you're likely to maybe remember at most 10%, which is two minutes, 20 minute sermon. Remember two minutes. If you take notes, if you're not distracted, if you don't have to go to the bathroom and if the kids you know, are behaving. At two minutes a sermon, do you know how long it would take you to get to 10,000 hours of expertise? I did the math. It's 146 years. Mm. So that's the difference between doing information disciple making, where we spend a lot of well-intended time doing something that is biologically pretty impossible, or when we do it the way God created us to, ordinary people can walk alongside another ordinary person and share what heaven's taught them. And it automatically has the power of prophecy 
to change their life. Hmm. Just like Revelation. The Bible proves itself through our biology all the time. Bible proves itself through our biology. Okay, so so um, you know, this this fall, Don and I lived in the UK in Oxford and taught there. And we'd walk by this church, St. Bartholomew's, that uh that has been worshiping in, in the same spot for a thousand years. So I want you to go back a thousand years ago where um you know people didn't know about brain science they just kind of um you know they people live their lives uh how how would i mean through the course of history now we know about brain science what you just said is yeah. based on brain science but for a long time churches and christians didn't know about that how did how would that relate to them how might how might they or could they live those truths out well, look at like like windows, right? Windows and stained glass windows. They're stories. They're mm -hmm. they're the pictures. They're the stories were told, not because people were literate and they were studying the the best uh, commentary, but like they told the stories like Ebenezer's through through the windows and the stained glass. The ritual that that the church carried, the Catholic Church carried for so long, had story and mystery attached to it. So now we're going to participate in a ritual so we can embody and, and experientially taste the Lord. And, you know, in our evangelical world, we look at that and maybe think that that's a little arcane, but there's something profound about how that meets the developmental needs of us as humans. And I think rejecting that kind of stuff actually creates part of the both the deconstruction and the lack of discipleship that we have today, because we didn't have anything anchored to that was experiential that would last and hold us stronger than just information and data. So I, the, if you look at the history of the church, they've been practicing these things for a long time. I don't know why we thought that we were smarter than them and like got over it and decided to do something different for a few hundred years. Maybe the enlightenment had something to do with it, but um, yeah, we've, We've kind of lost the plot a little bit, and I think we can all be on the same page about that. The enlightenment and autonomous individualism as, uh, yeah, an information overload. Anyway, um, last question: yeah. the What are some practical ways churches can build environments that actually? I mean, you kind of answered this when you when had you go you went through what you're doing in your church, but let's come back to it uh, and really add anything else you want to make sure we covered. But but what are some practical ways churches can build environments that encourage this kind of ordinary discipleship? Again, to remind everyone: the book is called Ordinary Discipleship. How God Wires Us for the Adventure of Transformation Environments. Talk to us about it. You know, and I'm coaching pastors on how to start to move their church culture to this. And, and the good news is that now people are really hungry for it. It, it recreated a, a big social contract change pre-2020 and people weren't maybe sure. But now it's a, it's a different world and it's a different conversation between pastors and congregations. And the congregants want this. So a couple of things that um, I coach pastors on. One is you have to disconnect disciple making from your leadership pipeline because everyone's called to be a disciple maker, but not everybody's called to be a leader in your organization. And if the only way that you can empower or see people as disciple makers is to have them in the leadership pipeline, then you're missing everybody, especially since people aren't volunteering anymore. So disconnect those two. See that they're different, handle them different, have different expectations there. Appropriate gatekeeping on leadership roles. Everyone gets to be a disciple maker. So that's one. The other one is that it, it does have to be a disciple making environment where people have the expectation that you're not just making a disciple like a rogue person out there, right? no solo heroes. You're also being discipled. You have accountability. You have um, people in your life who get to ask you, why did you do that? Or why did you say that? 
Um, the other thing that usually comes up then when I'm talking with pastors is changing the expectation that as disciple making communities form, sin actually comes to the surface to be, to, to be illuminated. I think God does that. That's not the enemy doing that. The enemy wants to hide it. God wants to illuminate it so that we can move through it and we can repent about it. So as you start to have disciple making communities, things start happening and coming up that are gross and weird. And we just have to be emotionally prepared for that. So that process means one, I think there's a promise that God will move Two, it increases our dependency on the Trinity and the scriptures. And three, it causes us to actually have to get healthier in our relationships with one another as we have those conversations. So I coach on attachment theory. I coach on social contract. How do we handle sin as a community? Because it comes up and it will happen. And we have to have healthy ways to handle sin. Not that we, you know, ignore it. And not if discipleship is happening, it hap- you know, the sin impact is outside the walls of the church. That's not what actually happens. The community actually starts to walk through that Ephesians 4, 12 through 16, where the body, as each part does its part, it becomes mended and healed and complete and whole and full of love. So I've seen that happen time and time again. It's really real. Scripture really proves itself to be true. We just have to get a little braver and handle a little messier and be a little less certain and a little more dependent in our faith. Ordinary Discipleship is the book, How God Wires Us for the Adventure of Transformation. Thanks, Jesse, for taking the time to have a conversation with us. Thanks for having me on, Ed. It's good to see you. You've been listening to Jesse Cruikshank. Be sure to check out her new book, Ordinary Discipleship, How God Wires Us for the Adventure of Transformation. You can learn more about Jesse at yourbrainbyjess.com. Thanks again for listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders podcast. You can find more interviews as well as other great content for ministry leaders at churchleaders.com slash podcast. And again, if you found our conversation today helpful, we'd love for you to take a few moments to leave us a review that'll help other ministry leaders find us and benefit from our content. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. You've been listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders podcast. For more great interviews, as well as articles, videos, and free resources, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.